Thank you, uh, Catherine and, and Becky. Beautiful as, as always. Thank you, David, for leading our choir this morning. And, and thank you, choir. Uh, each one of you did such an amazing job. Uh, we were blessed by that one there. Sort of bittersweet for me, because I would come here on Wednesday night, and I would be getting ready for Wednesday night, and they would be practicing. And now I don't have that anymore. I can't just sing along with a choir singing uh, Christmas songs. Uh, it was great for the last few weeks of rehearsal. I know you worked very hard on that, and uh, we were all blessed by it, so thank you. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 1 to 17 this morning. Matthew chapter 1, 1 to 17. The, uh, the office of president is a big deal. It's felt across our entire country. It's a, it's a big deal any time the election season comes around. Uh, Andrea, I know, is always uh, has had enough whenever election season rolls around because around our house, all I listen to is election coverage. I can't get enough of it. Just watching the, the political uh, uh, scene play out in front of me is is fun for me. It's entertaining for me. I watch it until all hours of the night. And I think across our country, just voter turnout and, and people watching on TV is evident that people are fascinated by this change that happens in our country um, or potential change every four years. Now, for the last about 40 years or so, the presidential office has flip-flopped back and forth between Republican and Democrat nearly every eight years, except for a, uh, an election or two. So for as long as I've been alive, all I have seen is the office change hands and flip back and forth between Republican and Democrat. And what that has allowed me to see growing up is hearing all my friends and my dad's friends and all those either complain about the results of the election and talk about how much despair there's going to be over the next four or eight years, or how much joy there is in their candidate winning, and how much potential there is for our nation over the next four or eight years. And all they're really doing is examining the effects that the new president will have on their way of life, thinking about the decisions that they'll be making over the next four or eight years and how the decisions in Washington will affect those plans over the next four or eight years. Now, we have been studying the book of Colossians, and it's come to a close. We've gone through it. But we have not left Colossians. Colossians is coming with us into Matthew. And as we look in the book of Matthew, well, what we've studied in Colossians, let me first say this, what we've studied in the book of Colossians, we reiterated it time and time again, Paul makes a statement in the first chapter of Colossians that we, are, we have been transferred from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of His beloved Son in Christ. And what I said when we got there and, and throughout the entire study of Colossians is that we've been granted a new citizenship a citizenship in the kingdom of Christ. We are no longer citizens of the domain of darkness, but we have been transferred out of that and into the kingdom of Christ. If you are a follower of Christ, that is true of you at this very moment. You are no longer citizens in the domain of darkness. 
you have been transferred into an entirely new kingdom and been given a new citizenship. Now, Matthew is going to help us understand that kingdom. He's going to show us, really, this, the, the entire book of Matthew is Jesus the Messiah bringing this kingdom into the domain of darkness and opening it up and inviting people into this new kingdom and showing how citizenship is granted in this new kingdom and what citizenship means in this new kingdom. So in many ways, Matthew is like a prequel to Colossians. We've seen Colossians. We've seen what is true of us now. Now we're going to Matthew to show how that's happened. It's a prequel of sorts. Now, I want to say just a word of warning. Anytime I've taught from either Matthew or Revelation, what I've noticed has been just true of all of us as Christians, as we have normally gravitated toward the New Testament, as for some reason have seen it as the most important part of the Bible, uh, for whatever reason we've gravitated toward the New Testament at the expense of our knowledge of the Old Testament. And so what Matthew is going to require of us is that we connect the Testaments. So pretty much every time we come together on a Sunday morning, there is going to be some bridging of the gap between Old Testament and New Testament. So you come with your flipping fingers ready to turn back to the Old Testament and back and forth to, from old to new. Now also a word has to be said about what we know about the author of Matthew, which isn't a ton, but we do expect that the author of the book of Matthew, his name is Matthew, and he was a disciple of Jesus. In many places throughout the, the New Testament he's called Levi, but he was a tax collector, and Jesus called him to follow him, and he did. And he's one of the, t- the original twelve. He's an apostle of Christ, and he is writing this gospel probably with a Jewish audience in mind. I think that's going to be evident from the very first chapter of Matthew, that a Jewish audience is in mind. But here we are as Gentiles reading this book. It applies to us, and we have to try really hard to understand it. So, Here we go. Let's open our Bibles, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, and let's begin reading there. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king." And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azer, and Azer, the father of Zadok, 
and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Christ was born, who is called, Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of, to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Genealogical research has always been of interest to me. And even more recently, I've started to at least do a little bit of investigation into my own family lineage, my own family history. And the one thing that I have discovered in doing what little bit of research I have done is that it is time consuming. If anybody has ever done this, it will consume every ounce of your day, no doubt. It's a full-time job in and of itself to investigate your family history. And the internet has certainly made this a little bit easier to trace your, your ancestry, but it's still a time-consuming process. And one of the reasons that it takes so much time is in the age where records weren't kept that well, you're having to find a single individual, and that's pretty difficult. But then there's another problem that can present itself from time to time. You're trying to narrow down the field of people that you found. You're trying to find the one John Smith that's pertinent to you in the midst of 100,000 John Smiths, and you have to narrow that down. Now, that's not particularly difficult for, for my family, but for some of you it probably would be. But in the end, what you're hoping to do is find a perfect line that traces itself all the way back until your earliest recorded ancestors. And it tells a story about you. It, it kind of tells who you are and how you came to be where you are. It, it tells your story in some way, how you became you. Well, Matthew opens his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus. And sometimes we can look at this genealogy through our own eyes and think maybe he's tracing Jesus' genealogy the same way we would do if we were to trace our own genealogy. But there are some oddities about this genealogy, some intricacies, some weird things about this genealogy. It becomes apparent that Matthew's aim isn't to produce an Ancestry.com genealogy for a couple of reasons. First, if Matthew's intention is simply to provide a list of Jesus' grandfathers, he does a poor job. As we'll see in a minute, there's some people missing from this list. So, if we're just looking at facts, like you might find in an archive, Matthew has not provided us with that. That's not his intention. And second... Matthew seems really intent on pointing out to us that this genealogy has a pattern to it. And he's exposing that pattern. He's not even going to let us figure out what that pattern is. He's just going to tell us what that pattern is. That there is a repetition of 14 generations between two significant events or three significant events. That's not a coincidence. It underscores Matthew's purpose in using this genealogy. So our intention this morning is not simply to do a character study of each person in this list. I don't think that actually helps us understand what Matthew is doing here. 
Instead, I want to ask, why has the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to use this genealogy in this way of Jesus? And I think if we can get to the bottom of that, if we can answer that question, it will provide for us a good foray into the rest of the book. So there are really just two things that I want us to see that God is doing in this genealogy this morning. And then at the end, I want to just point to a few things that that means for us in our life. Matthew's first intention is to say that God has fulfilled the promise of a Savior in Christ. God has fulfilled the promise of a Savior in Christ. Now, right out of the gate, Matthew is making a claim that he has to back up. He's making a statement that he has to back up. You see it right there in the first verse. If you look down there with me at the first verse, when he calls this the book or the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And I know we use that phrase a lot, the Jesus Christ, but it literally means Jesus Messiah or Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Savior. So he hasn't minced words or really confused us about what this means, about the point that he's trying to make. He's making the claim that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of David and he is the Messiah that Jewish people are looking for. This is him. So as we enter into the book of Matthew, as best we can, I want us to take our minds back to first century Judaism. Put yourself in the shoes of a Jew in the first century. Maybe you haven't even heard of who this Jesus is, and you're receiving Matthew's gospel for the very first time, and you're looking at the claims that he is going to make about this Jesus. Now, something that we know of you, and something we know of first century Jews is that they have been without a prophet for 400 years at least. They refer to these years as the silent years. Now, it doesn't mean God has neglected them in any way, but He has been silent in providing the Jews with a prophet for the last 400 years. Now, I want you to turn back with me just a couple of pages to your left, all right? Back to the book of Malachi. Just, it should just be one or two pages, unless you got one of those fancy study Bibles. It may be a few more than that. But it's just going to be a couple of pages probably to your left. You'll see Malachi 4, 5. Now, this is how the Old Testament closes. Malachi is considered to be the last prophet to Israel. He's the last one. He comes along around, somewhere around the year 430 B.C., and he records this, uh, this book. So Malachi 4 verse 5 is what we're going to look at. Just that verse. This is how essentially the Old Testament closes. He says, this is God talking, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So within the last couple of verses of the Old Testament, as the Old Testament comes to a close, you have God promising to the nation of Israel that I'm going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now flip forward to Matthew chapter 17. So back to your right, Matthew chapter 17. 
starting in verse 10. I know this is jumping way ahead into our study in the book of Matthew. And we're going to try to keep on track here and answer this question. There's a whole lot to talk about around Matthew 17, but, but we're going to focus on one specific thing here about this promise of Elijah the prophet coming before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, what's happened in Matthew 17 up to this point is as Jesus has taken the disciples, Peter, James, and John, up to the mountain, and he has been transfigured before them, which means he's been lifted up and he has been on display in front of them in all of his glory. And they've looked upon him in fear and, and shock and awe and even a little bit of terror. And there appeared with him Elijah and Moses lifted up and transfigured before them. And then all of that changed back and Jesus was back to who they know him to be. And he's walking with them down the mountain and he's told them, don't tell anybody about this until after I rise from the dead. And this brings up a question in the disciples' mind and they ask him here in verse 10, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, he being Jesus, answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So Jesus is telling us, here in this passage, Jesus himself is telling us that Elijah that was promised at the end of Malachi is fulfilled in John the Baptist coming. And we'll deal with obviously more on that later. And in chapter 3, we're going to deal with that even, even in more detail. But the reason that I want to bring this up now is because between God's promise at the end of Malachi... And the beginning of Matthew, where uh, essentially Jesus has, has come on board, or John the Baptist is, has come about, between that time, there has not been a prophet to the Jews. There's not been one. But Matthew is now making the claim that the Messiah, that God has promised, is here. That He is no longer silent, that he is speaking yet again to the Jews, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, after that, Matthew, if you look there in verse 1 of chapter 1, back to Matthew 1, 1. After that, uh, Matthew lists two key names within the first verse. He calls Jesus the Son of David and then the son of Abraham. And there's a very important reason that he uses these two in particular. The two of the most important qualifications that one could meet in order to be even considered for the role of Messiah would be that he would be of the lineage of both Abraham and David. And the reason that he has to be of the lineage of Abraham and David is due to the promises that God has made to both individuals. So let's deal with first with the promise that he made to Abraham. You'll remember the story probably in Genesis chapter 22 where God gives to Abraham a son named Isaac. And in, 20, in Genesis 22, you can just write that down there. In Genesis 22, 
God tests Abraham by telling him to sacrifice Isaac. Calls on him to sacrifice Isaac on the mountain. And Abraham faithfully goes and prepares to sacrifice his son. And of course, the Lord stops him in the process of doing this because it's, it's simply a test of his faith, it says there. But by virtue of Abraham's faith in the Lord, God reiterates a promise to Abraham. And he says this in 22.18 of Genesis. In Genesis 22.18, he says, God says, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now, when you and I read that, and maybe even when Abraham heard it for the first time, we would probably be thinking about all the children that would come from Abraham, maybe. Or maybe we're thinking about Isaac. In your offspring, in Isaac, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. But something interesting happens in the New Testament. Paul picks up on something peculiar in this verse, and he writes about it in Galatians 3, 16. So you can just, if you're taking notes, you can just put Genesis 22, 18, draw an arrow straight to Galatians 3, 16. And you can look at all these later as well, or you can follow along with me. Paul says this in Galatians 3, 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings. Referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring. And then he says this, which is key. Who is Christ? So Paul says that when God made that promise to Abraham, what his intention was in his mind was to bless all the nations of the earth through Christ through Abraham's eventual offspring. Whether Abraham knew what he meant at the time or not, that was God's intention, was to bless all the nations of the earth through Christ. So when Matthew calls him the son of Abraham in verse 1, yes, that lumps him in with a lot of people who are the children of Abraham. We have the song, right? Father Abraham had many sons. You know it. You're all shaking your arms. I got it. Everybody knows it. Right? (laughs) That lumps him in with a whole lot of people. But the point that Matthew is making is that he is the offspring of the promise through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He is the son of the promise. And you notice that this is just the header. This is just the very first verse. We don't actually get to the genealogy until verse 2. But Matthew is making special mention of these two characters, Abraham and David. Abraham in particular because God has fulfilled his promise of a Savior through this Christ. Through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But then the second intention, Matthew's second intention in this genealogy, is is to say that God has fulfilled the promise of a king. In Christ. 
God has fulfilled the promise of a king in Christ. The second uh, promise, and you probably uh, is probably for us the most important one, at least in this text that we're looking at this morning, is this one. Uh, that Jesus has is the promised son of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, God makes a promise to David. So you can just put there in your notes, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 to 13. He says this, When your days, this is God talking to, to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, in the immediate context of God speaking there, obviously we know Solomon comes right after David, and he builds, quite literally, a house for God, a temple, right? He builds this house. But the expectation at the end of verse 13 there is that the lineage of David will never leave the throne. He says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is a promise that he is making to David. And the Jews are expecting this, by the way. We have Isaiah who prophesies in 11.1 that, that the, this, this Messiah, this uh, bearer of our iniquities, will come forward from the shoot of Jesse. Jesse being David's father. That he's going to be a child of our descendant of Jesse. Then John 7.42, the Jews are arguing about whether or not this is the Christ, this is the Messiah. And they ask, has not Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David? So the Jews are expecting the Messiah to come from the line of David. They know that that's going to happen. But it's not just that Jesus is in David's house. That could be said of a lot of people. Absalom, Adonijah, they were all sons and, and they were in David's house, but they were not heirs to the throne. Matthew is taking it a step further and he's arguing that this Jesus Christ is the rightful heir to David's throne. And we know this because David is a prominent feature in this list. You'll notice as you look through this list of people, that there are many kings. In fact, the, the middle section there in verses 6 to 11 are kings. But only one person is labeled as a king. David. The Jews are, are clearly very big on keeping genealogies of people. And, and, and it's very clear that the Jewish people knew who was supposed to be sitting on David's throne even if there wasn't a throne to sit on. Look in verse 11, as you, as you get to Jeconiah. Other translations may have Jehoiakim, that's the same person. He enters, we enter into Babylonian captivity there at the end of the second section. And then we get into the next section. The names from Abiad in verse 13 all the way down to Jacob, who is Joseph's father, are not recorded anywhere in Scripture. So Matthew is clearly working with some sources that we don't have. But it's also very clear that the Jews are keen on keeping a record of the genealogies of who is supposed to be sitting on the throne, even in the midst of Babylonian captivity. And Matthew is demonstrating how this Jesus that I'm telling you about is of the line of David, of the royal line of David. But... There are two problems 
that come up in this genealogy that we have to address. The first problem in this royal line, in this succession plan here, happens right there at the name of Jeconiah, there in verse 11. See, we're told about this man in Jeremiah 22.30. You can write that down too next to his name. In Jeremiah 22.30, we are told, Thus says the Lord, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling in Judah. None of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. Well, well now it would seem that we have two conflicting promises. There's the covenant of David, the Davidic covenant, that he's already told David, I'm going to establish the throne of your son forever. And now we get to Jeconiah and he says, but not him. <laughs> How can that work? It would seem to present us with a, a problem. Put a pin in that. Hold on to that for just a second. Every time a story is told, it has to be set up. You have to do some setup of the story. You have to help people get in line with your way of thinking. Help them understand where you're coming from. We call this framing a story. Everybody does it when they tell a story. They frame the story to help you get on the same page as them, to help both of us think the same way about a particular subject. And we see this all the time in the news. So whether it, I could rattle off a ton of news sources, news channels, newspapers, websites, and probably everybody in here would be able to tell me whether they lean conservative or whether they lean liberal. I guarantee you we could, as I list off the name. I won't, but I guarantee you we could. <laughs> That's not where we're going. <laughs> but the reason is because everybody who's telling a story, they could report the same quote, they could give you the same facts, but everybody is going to frame that story a particular way. It's the paragraph before or the paragraph after that help you think about that quote that tells you where their loyalties lie or where their what their point really is. The biblical authors also frame their stories. They're not just giving you historical facts. They are giving us facts, for sure. They are telling us true things. They are giving us facts, and those are involved in what they're doing. But what they're doing is more than that. They're actually telling you something about the way you should understand these facts. They're not just random facts. You have to think a certain way about these facts. They're framing the facts, if you will. And in this case, Matthew tells us exactly how he wants us to see these facts. He says there in verse 17, at the very end, he says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations generations. Well, this poses a, kind of a second problem for us. First, because three kings are omitted from this list. If you look there on the list between Joram and Uzziah, there are three kings, Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah, that are left off the list. And that's according to the same list in First and Second Chronicles. 
And the second reason this poses a difficulty for us is that because the last group of individuals has 13 generations in it. 13 generations in it. Counting Jesus. Now, somebody is going to go back and you're going to count all these. Probably all of you are. And you're going to start with Jeconiah and you're going to count. But that's a mistake because Jeconiah is at the end of the second group as well. So don't count him twice. So you don't start with Jeconiah. You start with the one after him. And if you count all the way to Jesus, Joseph, then Jesus, you have 13. I think it's probable what Matthew wants to do is something a little bit different. I think, it's, I think he's being intentional here. Let me be clear about this. I think he's being intentional. Mainly because I think Matthew can count. All right? I think he can count. So I think he knows what he's doing here. And I think he's being intentional. He's not telling you, oh, well, this last one actually has 13. Just please don't count the list uh, or you'll see. And, and please don't go back and check my sources because you'll see that I left off three kings. I think it's probable that what he wants us to count is Joseph and Mary as part of two different generations or lines of David. Joseph being the legal royal line that all the Jews would recognize in David establishing Jesus' right to the throne. But then Mary being of the bloodline walking around Jeconiah. And you'll see Mary's bloodline in Luke chapter 3. So this keeps Jesus in David's royal lineage, but not technically being an offspring of Jeconiah. And I think that's the most probable explanation for why Matthew arranges this the way that he does. And it keeps that last paragraph, that last little section, with 14 generations, counting both Joseph and Mary. There's lots of explanations that could be probable. I think that's probably the best one. And he's very clear. There are 14. He makes this point. He makes, you, he makes sure you understand. There are 14 generations here. 14 between each significant event. From Abraham to David. From David to the deportation of Babylon and deportation of Babylon to Jesus. There are 14. And that's really important. And all of us in here are going, sure man. <laughs> Whatever. I have no idea why that's important. Now, it would seem that that's supposed to mean something to the audience he's writing to. And it would seem like maybe it's lost something on us. What is he talking about? 14 generations. Why would that really matter? There was a... Well, we aren't told for sure. Let me just say that for, for up front. We're, we're not told for sure, but there's some, some pretty good educated guesses and one that I think is most probable. The, the Jewish people had this long cryptic tradition called gematria. Gematria. G-E-M-A-T-R-I-A. G-E-M-A-T-R-I-A. Gematria. It's basically assigning a numeric value to a letter in the alphabet. That's what it is. So they do this in Hebrew. They do this in Greek. The one that you all are most familiar with, you know this, it comes from Revelation. The, when it's talking about the beast, the number of his name is 666, right? That's gematria. Taking the letters and they've they've added up to six six six. Essentially, what you would do if we were in English, we would say A equals one, B equals two, C equals three, D equals four, and on and on we would go. About halfway through the alphabet, we would switch to counting by tens, and so we would say maybe like L equals ten, 
M equals 20, and don't make me count beyond that. Um, I'm not sure I can do it. All right. But then at the very end of the alphabet, we would start counting by 100. So we might say like X equals 100, Y equals 200, Z equals 300. And then at the end, we would take someone's name and we would take all the numeric values associated with their, the letters in their name. We would add them up. Well, in Hebrew, if you count David's name, there are no vowels in Hebrew, so you would just have DVD. D is the fourth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. V is the sixth letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And D, obviously, we get another four. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but if I did my scratches right on my paper and I carried the one right, I get 14. And I think that would be significant to a Jew where it's probably lost on a Gentile audience. He's making a point here. If, if, if these are the reasons that Matthew has constructed this genealogy this way, then verse 17 is not simply saying, look how coincidental this is, that there are 14 generations between each significant event. Instead, Matthew is saying, I have presented to you an argument that God has put this Jesus forward as the rightful heir to the throne of David and the promised Messiah. This is him. In other words, get the message. He is the offspring. Ladies and gentlemen, look no further. This is the Messiah. He has come. He's sitting on the throne and is reigning. Behold, King Jesus. This is Matthew's point. Leading into the gospel with this genealogy. He's making an argument that Jesus is king. That Jesus is on the throne. And the rest of the Gospel of Matthew is going to spell out exactly what that means for us. But look no further for your Messiah. He has come, He is here, and He is reigning on the throne. Now, this could be for some good news or bad news. For the unbeliever in this room, this could potentially be bad news for you. What we're talking about here is that Jesus is on the throne of the universe. That he rules everything that is. And that it's his standard of justice that must be met. And this could potentially be very bad news for you because what that means is that in the end, you are going to face, face to face, the judge of the entire universe. And you're going to give an account. And it's his standard of justice that must be met. His standard of justice is not naughty or nice. His standard of justice is holy or unholy. Now the question that you have to wrestle with is, am I holy? And what that means is one sin falls short of the glory of God. Have I committed even one sin in my life? If so, then I fall short. But for the unbeliever, there is also good news. Because Christ is not only the King, He is also the Messiah, the Savior. 
He didn't just leave us in despair because truth be told, every single one of us would be standing in front of God no matter how nice we are. I think all of us know people who are really nice. And we think about the doctrine of hell and we look at those people and we go, there's no way God could send them to hell. You see how nice they are? They're nicer than some of the Christians that I know. How could God possibly do that? Because, friend, the standard is not nice or naughty. The standard is holy or unholy. And every single one of us falls short in that category. But Jesus, knowing that we're in that state, came to deliver us from it because He is our Messiah. He came to live the perfect life that we never could and give His life as a ransom for many. So it could be bad news or good news for you. But for us, it changes the way that I share the gospel with them, does it not? It gives me unparalleled confidence when I share the gospel with an unbeliever. Because Jesus' kingship is not contingent upon their belief. He is king whether they believe it or not. If they don't believe it, they'll have to take it up with him. And they will. will. They'll stand before him one day and give an account as to why they didn't believe him as the king of the universe. And they'll look like a fool doing it. But they'll have that opportunity. But we get so timid sharing the gospel. Like we're wearing buttons on our chest that says Jesus for president. The only problem is that the culture is making a mockery of Jesus. And so that puts us in a real pickle. Because in order for Jesus to get the votes to be president, I've got to tell somebody. But if I tell somebody, then they'll make a mockery of me. Folks, Jesus isn't running for president. He doesn't need votes. He is the king of the universe. And that position is set in stone. I'm not a campaign volunteer. I'm a newsboy reading a headline. Jesus is king. That's it. You either accept it or you don't. But everyone will give an account. Now, there's also two events that we find ourselves in the midst of right now. The first, and and, and two events in particular that Jesus' kingship, I think, applies directly to. The first is, obviously, we're coming up on election in two days, where the U.S., where Alabama is going to vote on this U.S. Senate seat um, coming up on Tuesday. And the second is just a matter of a few weeks away is, is Christmas. So this may be the only time in an application where you hear politics and Santa Claus, all right? Probably the only time. Let the record show. On the election, I understand how the attitude and the atmosphere in a church changes when you start discussing politics from the pulpit. I understand what that's like. And I also understand that everyone has a side. Even if your side is not voting, that's still a side. Everyone has a side. Everyone has an opinion. But if you think 
that Jesus being king of the universe has nothing to do with your political stance, you've lost your mind. There is an importance, though, that we place on politics in this country that borders on idolatry. The way we often talk about politics, one might listen to our conversations and be convinced that our hope lies in the winning candidate on election night. If your side doesn't win, you're depressed. If your side does win, you're optimistic about the future that could be in front of him. And I'm not talking about what you share on social media. I'm not talking about what you talk about with your friends. I'm talking about the feeling that's in your heart. And only you know that. That feeling that you get when your candidate wins or when your candidate loses. We put so much stock in these men and women running for office that you'd think they saved us from our sins. You'd think they provide us our hope for eternal life. You'd think our hope was in their name. Church, there is only one name in whom we can place our hope. And that is in the name of Jesus, because God has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. And I don't know about you, but the kind of change that I want in this country cannot be accomplished in Washington, D.C. They cannot do it. They're incapable of doing it because the kind of change that I want is where every person in the hearts of men and women will bend their knees to worship the Christ who is on the throne. So that means that your prayers are more powerful than your votes. Your witness is more powerful than your campaigning. That is what we're after. The hearts of men and women to bend their knees before the Father. So pray that God would humble us under the mighty hand of Jesus who is the only one who sits on the throne. He cannot be voted in and he cannot be impeached. Second, we're quickly approaching Christmas season. Society around us, as we've already seen and we will continue to see in the coming days, is bent on consumerism. My worry and my fear is that in the church, what we're discipling our kids in is the same consumerism. That we're trying to pass that on from generation to generation. And that we're trying to give our kids consumerism. Parents, please listen to me. Do not pass on consumerism to your kids. In fact, Fight against it. Instead, present to them a good argument, both in the way you live and the words you say for Jesus as King. He is what's worth worshiping. He is is what's worth handing down from generation to generation. He is not an elf on a shelf. He is a king on a throne. And he deserves to be worshipped. And as you see in your houses... That that greed rearing its ugly head and consumerism climbing up. Kill anything that distracts from it, that distracts from the worship of Christ. Even if society promotes it. Even if they hear it at school. Even if they hear it here. 
if it distracts their hearts from the worship of Christ and replaces it instead with greed and consumerism, kill it, whatever it takes. Because the one we worship is the king of the universe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of being worshipped. We give to you our attention, our adoration, our praise. And during this season, we take a moment to focus on the Christmas story. Christ becoming man. God incarnate. Laying before us as a fragile baby. Coming to bear our iniquity. How unworthy we are. We are unworthy for what you have done. But Lord, we realize that it's you that's worthy of worship. That it's the name of Christ that is worthy of proclamation. Not all of these other things in our lives. But your son. I pray that our church magnify him. Not only in our worship, but in our hearts. May that be true of us this morning, ever, and always. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Stand.